theyeshiva.net. Okay, thank you so, so much. I'm really privileged to be here with all of you. Thank you for your very kind words. Thank you for the New Rochelle community, for this very special invitation during this special time of the year as we are about to bid farewell to 5780. Certainly a year that we will not forget <laughs> so easily and so fast. Um, this Tough Shinpei 5780 2020 gives us hindsight and perspective, but we welcome a new year. Tough Shinpei Aleph 5781. And I too want to acknowledge the special soul in whom honor and loving memory this year is dedicated. Elliot Goldberg, as you just said, Yitzchak Isaac, Ben Arav Eliezer, Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac, Zechreina Levracha, as you said, who recently passed away after a few decades of courageously, courageously <coughs> battling quite a severe illness, and yet with the righteousness and selflessness of his parents and family and friends, he lived his 47 years and returned his soul to its maker. So tonight is a great tribute in his honor. I want to thank his sister and brother-in-law from New Rochelle for bringing us all together tonight. Adrian and Sean Miller, I want to, of course, welcome Elliot's parents, father and mother, who are gracing us here this evening. Rachel and Leo Goldberg, and Elliot's brother, a dear friend of mine, a beloved friend of mine, Josh Goldberg. So welcome to uh, the Meller family, welcome to the Goldberg family, and welcome to all of you who are joining us from New Rochelle or wherever else you're joining from across the world. I am really honored to be here with you. The rabbi asked me to speak for uh, 50 minutes, 5-0, and then open up the floor to questions and answers and dialogue. So I hope, Rabbi, the chat, the chat button is open, right? So anybody can uh, share anything they would like. And uh, God willing, when I'm done, we're going to dedicate special time to conversation, questions and answers. You can either unmute yourself or speak, or you could just put your question or comment in the chat section, and I will, Be'ezer Hashem, Bli Neder, address it. So our theme this evening is the concept, faith, and notion of Mashiach among the Jewish people in Judaism, especially during this time, as I saw you titled it, Mashiach during the time of Corona. And I have recently, recently, I mean the last six months, since the pandemic broke out, and it changed everybody's life. There has been a lot of conversation online, in person, on Zoom chats, lectures, and all types of exchanges in Jewish newspapers, magazines, etc., about this topic of Mashiach. I guess whenever there's a crisis, there's a new awareness, there's new expectations, new predictions, new speculations. So obviously, a theme like Mashiach immediately becomes part of the conversation. But I found a very interesting and really painful and disturbing comment that I was receiving from a lot of people 
including from many young people. And that is, people wrote to me, and I say this, I, I'm almost quoting them verbatim, it's not literally verbatim, but almost verbatim, how much they are hesitant to feel any positivity about Mashiach. They don't want Mashiach to come. They don't want the Geula to unfold. And they wrote to me, it's very scary. We have learned that we will be judged. We will be damned for eternity in purgatory. All those who are not deserving will be obliterated and wiped out. Some of us will be experiencing severe penalties and punishments. Why should I look forward to this? It seems like a, a disaster in the making. Much worse than any pandemic. It's like looking forward and praying for a calamity. And yet Jews pray for it and ask for it and hope for it. And every rabbi finishes his sermon. We should have the Geulo, Valutzi and Goyal, Vinoimar Amen. And we ask for it throughout the davening many times every day, the morning and the afternoon and the evening and benching constantly. We await Mashiach every day. And many people say, for what? For when? Either my life is pretty comfortable now. And even if there are challenges, financial and social and emotional and psychological and spiritual and health-wise, etc. But still, more or less, life is not bad. And who needs, who needs, uh, who, who needs to change anything? And those who are actually, it's not just passive, but very actively, they're very afraid of all this. So tonight, with your permission and God's grace, I would like to shed some clarity what is this concept of Mashiach? What is it that Jews believe in? What is it that we look forward to? Why do we pray for it? Why do we say, Why is it one of the 13 principles of faith that Maimonides, Rambam, inserted as one of the fundamentals of Judaism? And many Jews recite the 13 principles every morning, just like there's an existence of God, and an existence of afterlife, and an existence of divine Torah. There is also the reality of Mashiach as an essential component of Jewish faith. And we say, I believe with perfect faith the coming of Mashiach. And even if he tarries, I await his coming every single day. In the davening, in the Amidah Shmonaster, we say three times a day, for your salvation, the salvation of Mashiach, we await all day, all day. That's a tall order. That's very serious words. We don't await it once in a while. We don't look forward to it. We don't think it's a good thing. Kol Hayyim, literally every morning, we say it by Shachris. Mashiach didn't come by Mincha. We say it again by Mincha. We say it by Mairif. I don't know if you know, but there are 18 blessings in Shmona Esrei. Today it's 19. They added one more. It's called Shmona Esrei, which means 18. But then the times of Ram Gamliel, at the end of the Bayez Sheni, they added the, the bracha of Alam al-Shinim. So we have 19. And do you know that a third of them deal with Mashiach? <laughs> a third of the blessings. There are six blessings, six blessings in which we pray for Mashiach. There's one dedicated to health. There's one dedicated to wisdom. There's two dedicated to forgiveness. There is one dedicated to the economy. And six of them dedicated to Mashiach. And that's every single morning, afternoon, and evening. That means 18 blessings a day. We ask Hashem for the Geula. Re'einava anyeinu goel Yisrael. T'ka b'shofer gadol l'cheiruseinu. Hashiva sheftenu kavarishayna. V'li Yerushalayim ircha. 
Asemach David Avdecha Meiris Atzmiach V'sechazen Einenu B'shuvcha L'tziyayin And if it's not enough, when we finish davening, we go back three steps, and what do we say? Yihirotzen sheyibona beisamiktash v'mheira v'yameinu, a seventh time. The same is true with benching. Full of it, rachim Hashem alekeinu, etc. Not only that, it's just an interesting halachic um, point that I think might interest you. Why do we wash our hands before bread? Anybody knows, why do we wash our hands before we eat challah or any bread we wash before we make the hamaytzi? What's the reason for this? So the fascinating reason for this is, you could look this up in, uh, in the, in, in the halacha, in Erechayim, Simon, Kufnon, Ches, in the Lavush, in the Shulchan Aruch Harav, in the Mishnah Brura, in the laws of washing the hands. The primary reason, or one of the primary, one of the main reasons for this is, because the Kohanim, the priests, would always eat truma, which means they would eat the tithing, the sacred tithing that was given to them from all the farms and all the orchards of the produce in the Holy Land, including all the grain. And most of that holy food was turned into bread. That's what they did with grain. They made bread out of it. And this is sacred food. You're not allowed to touch it with hands that are contaminated. So before they would eat truma, already Shlomo HaMalach instituted, they have to wash their hands to make sure their hands are clean before they touch the sacred food. Now, the sages realize it's going to be very uncomfortable if you have a Kohen in the house, he's going to be the only one or she's going to be the only one who washes their hands before bread. So they instituted that everybody should wash their hands before bread. So that way we won't distinguish between Kohanim and anybody else. And everybody will be used to washing their hands before bread. And that way the Kohanim will certainly wash their hands before bread. And the sacred food of Truma will remain pure and intact. The question then became, as the commentators, in the times of exile now, we don't have Truma anymore. We don't give the truma to the Kohanim for them to eat it because none of us are considered pure. So why are we washing our hands now? And you know what their answer is? Their answer is because any moment Mashiach will come and then purity will be restored to Israel and the Kohanim will start eating bread for truma and they will have to start washing their hands. So that's why we wash our hands so that when Mashiach comes, everybody will be used to washing their hands for bread so that the Kohanim will be able to wash their hands for truma and the truma will remain holy. So I want you to understand, my dear friends, how Jews think. For almost 2,000 years, we have been washing our hands before bread. Why? Because any moment Mashiach could come, and we have to be used to washing our hands before bread, so that the Kohanim will wash their hands before bread. Is there anything that clarifies and crystallizes in a more emphatic and dramatic way the Jewish people's approach to Mashiach as something that was not just a conceptual nice idea, but as something that they literally breathed and perceived as reality. So what is this, the whole thing of Mashiach? What, what does it mean? What is the concept here? Of course, it deserves many a shir and many a lecture, but today I want to touch on a few points, and most importantly, I want to make it relevant. The Gemara says in Sanhedrin, Tractate Sanhedrin, chapter 11, Rabbi Yechanan says, Lo ivra alma elele the world was created for Mashiach. What does he mean with that? The Medrash says, in the opening of creation, it says, in the beginning God created heaven and earth, and the earth was void and chaotic, and there was darkness on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered above the water. Very mystical and profound and loaded and enigmatic verse. What this really means and the Medrash gives a fascinating interpretation. The Medrash says it's really recording all of history. 
The Medrash says how every term and description represents another empire that dominated much of society, including Jewish society, whether it was the Egyptians, whether it was the Assyrians, the Babylonians, whether it was the Persians, the Greek, and finally the Roman Empire. And the Medrash continues, Viruach Elakim, but the Spirit of God hovers above the water, this is the energy of Mashiach. From the beginning of creation, it hovers above reality. Again, what are the sages trying to say? And I think the best way to explain this briefly and concisely is by introducing another fascinating teaching in the Midrash. And that is, did you ever notice that in Hebrew, the word for exile and the word for redemption is almost identical? The word for exile is goyle, gimel vav lamed hey, or g-o-l-e-h, gola, which means exile. The word for redemption is the same thing, goyle, gimel vav lamed hey. One difference, for redemption, we put in an aleph, we insert an aleph. When you put in an aleph, one, goyle, exile becomes geula, becomes redemption. So what's the difference between exile and redemption? It's a single letter. You don't change the word, you just add one letter. Which letter? The letter Aleph, which is the letter one. And Aleph means Alufoy Shal Oilam, which means the leader of the world. When you introduce Aleph, which is also the acronym of Echad or Achados, Aleph, you introduce the Aleph into exile and you experience Gu'ula, you experience redemption. And basically, what our sages are teaching us here, my dearest friends, I think can be encapsulated by the following idea that we can all reflect upon. The world was created in a way that there is a lot of concealment in our life. We do not see the deeper meaning of life. We do not see the presence of God often. Our sages tell us that the Hebrew name for world is olam. The word olam has the same etymology like the word helam, la'olam, zeshmi la'olam, concealment. Like in Hebrew, lahalim is to hide, to conceal. Olam means a world, it also means concealment. Why? Because our world eclipses its inner underlying reality. Even from a scientific perspective, it's true. When I'm looking at a microphone, or at a video camera, or at a table, or at a book, what do I see? I just see physical matter. But if I was given microscopic instruments, I would suddenly see a whole universe that is revolving within every physical matter. The world of the atoms, which is so vibrant and so alive, what seems at the surface as just a static, lifeless world, is really teeming with tremendous life, because every single piece of matter is comprised of who knows how many atoms, and each atom is fully alive where you have the nucleus of the atom, and then the electrons revolving around the atom. So there's a whole inner life that my eye may not see, but it exists. And then if you go a step deeper, if you go to the subatomic levels of reality, subatomic particles, you have layers of reality and consciousness that are completely beyond our comprehension, especially in the world of quantum physics, quantum mechanics, uh, probability theory, Schrodinger's cat, etc., where 
there's a whole new reality that we can't even see with our own eyes. Till the late 1800s, we didn't know about the existence of viruses, of bacteria, of germs. We did not know. Who understood it? We didn't have the instruments to be able to see this level of reality. We look at our body from a physical, external perspective. Who would guess that inside this body, there are 60 trillion cells? 60 trillion cells. Each cell with its unique individual and indispensable function in the mechanism of the body. And within each cell, the complexity, the astounding complexity of the cell, especially in the nucleus of the cell, and the double copy of the genome, which is the blueprint for the entire creation of the human body, it tells us that beyond our physical naked eye, there is a reality that is so much deeper. And if somebody were to ask me or you, what is more significant in life? What has a greater impact? That which you see with your naked eye, or that which you don't see with your naked eye? I'll ask you a question, the coronavirus. The coronavirus you can't see with your naked eye. But it had quite an impact, hasn't it? That's where we're having a Zoom chat tonight. What about electricity? Nobody has ever seen electricity with their naked eye, but electricity has quite an impact. Atomic energy nobody sees with their naked eye, or atoms, or cells, but they have quite an impact. DNA. So the point is that our eyes are very limited containers that channel all energy from a specific perspective, and we impose the interpretation from the perspective of our retina as it's interpreted in the brain. There are light frequencies that we can't even know about. We don't experience it. There's certain colors we don't see. There's sounds we don't hear. It was Max Planck, Nobel Prize winner and one of the fathers of, of theoretical and quantum physics, who once said these very powerful words, he said, you know, we used to think that consciousness is a derivative of matter. But that's not the case anymore. All matter is a derivative of consciousness. Which means in simple English, we always thought that matter is absolute reality. And now there's ways of thinking about it, of experiencing it, of relating to it. Modern physics has transformed that completely. It taught us it's exactly the other way around. Matter is a derivative of consciousness. You change your mind and you change your find. It's our observation of reality that creates reality. It's my interpretation of what I'm seeing that actually creates what I'm seeing. The fact remains that in the quantum world of physics, there are so many paradoxes. Particles moving clockwise and counterclockwise simultaneously. Particles of light being both waves and particles simultaneously. And it's our observation that causes them to collapse into fixed models. So the bottom line is, he said, matter is a derivative of consciousness. In other words, what looks like a concrete physical reality is that way only because that's what my brain tells me it is. Because those are the vessels, the instruments that I use to define reality. There's a lovely metaphor that's attributed to Heisenberg. He said that there was once a fisherman who decided he wants to ascertain all the types of fish that exist in the Pacific. And this theoretical fisherman lowered this grand, absolutely huge net for weeks and then lifted up the net and came out with an announcement that there are no fish that are smaller than 10 inches. Now this was a mockery 
No fish in your own living room. You have a fish tank with goldfish that are far smaller than 10 inches. But then they realized he wasn't lying. You know what the problem was? Problem was that the holes in his net were 10 inches wide. So therefore there were no fish that was smaller than 10 inches. Because the instruments that we use to ascertain reality, they define the type of reality that we discover. Yet, rarely do we go back and revisit the instruments that we use. We always naturally assume that the instruments that we use are absolutely valid, but it's not the case. You always have to ask yourself the question, this is reality, but what are the instruments I'm using to describe reality? Maybe those instruments are so limited, they can't even grasp much of reality. We know today that 99.9 of an, 99% of an atom is empty space, which means, as one physicist said, that the whole physical world, in terms of matter, can technically fit, can technically fit in to my carry-on suitcase. Because 99% of matter is really empty space. It's just our eyes cannot deal with that. So our eyes turn everything into solids. What is that empty space? That empty space is a whole other field of energy. And that's divine energy. Divine energy is really at the core of all reality. The Baal Shem Tov taught, tonight is the birthday of the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov taught that creation is not a something that happened many years ago. Creation is something that happens perpetually. Every single moment, the divine energy vibrates through every single existence, from the smallest creature to the largest creature, from a mosquito, a bee, a caterpillar, to an elephant, a rhinoceros, and a lioness. Every planet and every black hole, every star and every galaxy, every heartbeat, every cell, every electron, every quark, every single existence from a grain of sand to a flake of snow, from a droplet of rain to a blade of grass, from a shrub, bush, tree, vegetable, fruit, every living organism, every organic matter, inorganic matter, everything is pulsating with life. But the inner life that is pulsating through it is divine life, divine energy. And therefore the whole world is one. Physics is looking today for the string theory. What's the ultimate string theory they're going to explore? It's what the Kabbalists, the great mystics, and the, all the works of Hasidic spirituality and all the works of Jewish spiritual thought, Machshava, Hashkafa, Kabbalah, Nistach, Siddhis have taught. And that is the ultimate string theory is going to be Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. The oneness of the divine that pervades not just all of humanity, and not just all of the animal kingdom, but the whole world of botany, the whole lifeless world. Heaven and earth and everything in between. In the words of Maimonides, the immortal words of the Rambam, in the opening of his magnum opus, the Mishnah Torah, where he says, and I quote, the foundation of foundations, the pillar of wisdom, is to know that all of existence has a core and a beginning. And everything that exists in heaven and earth and anything in between, loy nimtsu ela has emerged from the truth of divine reality. So the divine reality pervades everything. Every human being, every heartbeat, every existence. Things that we see with our eyes, things that we don't see. 
things that are on dry land, things that are water, and in water. Whether you're dealing with a reptile or an insect or a fish or a bird or a mammal or homo sapien, everything is filled with divine energy that brings it into existence, that sustains it, that molds it, that crafts it, that sculptures it, and ultimately constitutes its ultimate chemistry. The physical laws of chemistry are manifestations of the spiritual laws of chemistry. The spiritual laws of chemistry are the laws of chemistry that are represented by the inner divine energy that vibrate through it. All of Judaism is really a meditation and a practice of how do I live my life with oneness? How do I wake up in the morning and synchronize my body, my organism, my soul, my mind, with the oneness of God and the oneness of creation. That's why we have a mitzvah, right? When we wake up in the morning, even before sunrise, to say the Shema in the morning and in the evening. Saying the Shema in the morning and in the evening is really the declaration of the Jew that we're living not in a fragmented world. We're living in a world of absolute harmony and oneness. Yes, my naked eye often perceives dichotomies, fragmentations, splits, strife, fighting, egocentricity, narcissism, and of course war, violence, rioting, racism, bigotry, discrimination, and all types of strife and animosity that exists between peoples, between families, between communities, between nations, between ethnic groups, between tribes, and ultimately between countries. I once heard from the late Professor Elie Wiesel, Eliezer Wiesel, Eli Wiesel. He once said, you know, we Jews have a little weakness for fighting. We like arguing, we like fighting. He says, but we're a sophisticated people. So we give our fighting sophisticated names. We fight with the whole world and we call it sociology. Then we start fighting with God and we call it theology. He says, then we start fighting with ourselves. We call it Psychology. I once heard from the late Lubavitcher Rebbe of blessed memory. He said, why is it when two Jews meet, one says, Shalom Aleichem, and the other one says, Aleichem Shalom. Why isn't the response reciprocal? Shalom Aleichem, Shalom Aleichem. Imagine in English, I would tell you, good evening. And you would say, Rabbi Waiwai, evening good. I would say, how are you? And you would say, you are how? I'd say, what's up? Up what's? You would think of a little Meshiga, yet we do this in Hebrew with them. Shalom Aleichem. Aleichem Shalom. And he said, because when two Jews meet, even when they just greet each other, the first thing they have to establish is that they are in an argument. Shalom Aleichem. No, it's the other way around. It's Aleichem Shalom. Once we establish that we're in an argument, now we can begin to have, hopefully, a civil and peaceful conversation. So yes, instinctively, There is a world that is completely fragmented. The history of humanity is a history of war, of violence, and of strife. Outside and inside. How about inside of me, inside of you? How much conflict do you have inside of you? We are conflicted between our minds and our hearts, between our conscious and our subconscious, between our sober parts and our non-sober parts, between our traumas, and our healthy parts, between the parts of us that feel that we are confident and the parts of us that feel wounded, 
we are filled with conflict, conflict between different instincts and temptations and priorities and desires and quests and searches. Who is not conflicted? A human being, by definition, is conflicted. The moment you stop being conflicted, you know, wow, man, it would be fascinating to hear, but people are conflicted. In other words, we live in a world where there is so much dichotomy. And yet, this is what Mashiach represents. Mashiach is bringing the Aleph into the Gaila. Bringing Aleph as Echad, Achdos, Aleph, Hashem, Aluf Yishalayim. It's revealing the oneness in everything in your life. Realizing that ultimately everything is one. What does it mean everything is one? That every single moment and in every single experience I can tap in to the divine opportunity of that moment and that experience. And when I tap into the divine moment and to the divine opportunity of that experience, then I'm ultimately emancipated from the husks and the shells that get me distracted. So I have to ask myself, in what consciousness do I live? Do I live in a consciousness of exile or do I live in a consciousness of redemption? The Tanya says that Mashiach is not just a global event that defines the whole world. It starts off as a personal event that happens every day when you pray. Mashiach begins in a very personal, intimate space. Yes, there is the Mashiach for the whole world, but there is the inner, inner core. The Moira Enayim writes in Parshas Chukas that every person is a little Mashiach. Every person has a spark of Mashiach. The Talmud says in Shabbos 119, Don't touch my anointed ones. These are the little children. Why are our children called Mashiachs? Mashiach is the name of the king, the anointed one, who God will send as his ambassador to set the world on fire in a good way, to bring out the positivity in everybody. But every Jewish child is called Mashiach. One of the reasons is, I heard this from Rabbi Adin Steinzaltz, Rabbi Adin Evan Yisrael, who just passed away recently, one of the great scholars and luminaries of our times. And he said something very profound. He said that every child, especially a Jewish child, when he or she is growing up, feels that they are either Mashiach or they could do something to bring Mashiach. Meaning as children, we have these grand ambitions. I'm going to change the world. I'm going to live an amazing life. I'm going to bring so much light to the world. You know, we have these youthful, idealistic, grand expectations from ourselves. But then we grow up and the pain of life, the stress of life, the anxiety of life, disappointment, mental stress, physical stress, financial stress, health health issues, relationship issues, everyone according to their little pekala, their their journey. We get cynical, we get apathetic, we become numb, we become indifferent. I just want to make ends meet and finish the day in peace and dignity and get a good night's sleep. And that's already asking for a lot. So the Talmud says, Never allow anybody to kill your little Mashiach. Never allow anybody to snuff out your inner child. Never allow anybody to murder your innocence, your idealism, the dreamer in you, the part in you that has the capacity to make a difference in the world. Don't grow old in the sense that you become cynical and numb and indifferent and you could just make fun of everybody and we just give up and we live, in Thoreau's words, a life of quiet desperation. No, carpe diem. Every day, suck the marrow out of life. The faith of the Jewish people in Mashiach is the faith that there is really oneness. That means 
There is not a moment that cannot be redeemed. There is not an experience that cannot be redeemed. Beneath every challenge lay the presence of God. This means every challenge is an opportunity. This means every challenge is a catalyst and a springboard for awareness, for healing, for rebirth, for renewal. The reason Jews always believe the Mashiach, it begins with the beginning of creation, because Mashiach really represents the essence of Judaism. What is the essence of Judaism? Then Judaism is not just ritualistic behavior. I go through motions, I do nice things, which are all wonderful and amazing. I eat matzah on Passover, I listen to the ram's horn on Rosh Hashanah, I shake willows on Sukkot, I light candles on Hanukkah, I eat hamantashen on Purim, and many other beautiful and sacred rituals of Judaism. Yes, but there's a string theory of Judaism. Every mitzvah of Judaism is a fragment of a big picture. Judaism is the universal revolutionary idea that began with Abraham, and that is that our world is really a place of oneness, that all the conflicts that exist in your life, that all the challenges exist in your life, exist there and they're powerful and they're real and sometimes they're painful. But never, ever, ever despair. Never, ever give up. Take your microscope, take your spiritual, intellectual, emotional microscopes, and that's what Torah is, and look a little deeper, and you will find meaning, you will find purpose, you will find God's presence, you will find an opportunity for transformation. This does not mean that every experience in life is easy. This does not mean there's no pain in the world. What it does mean is that within the pain, There is also purpose. God is present. There is love. Never ever believe that you are lost, that you are detached, that any situation is hopeless. Never. Some of us have experienced trauma in our youth. And you know what trauma does to you, right? It causes you to live a very restricted life. It causes you or me to respond from a very restricted place, from a place of trauma. It cuts us off from the wealth of possibility that vibrates in our soul. What does it mean to have faith in Geula and Mashiach? It means to believe that your trauma is not your core. I am not my trauma. I am not my anxiety. I am not my stress. I am not my fear. I am not my abuse. It may be inside of me, and I may have to dig very, 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 very deep. But if I continue digging, I will ultimately be able to extricate my infinite self, my divine self, from amidst all the rubble, and live life from an emancipated space. A little story. There was a great Hasidic master, he's known as Reb Mendele Vitebske, or Reb Mendele Haradoker. He went, he made Aliyah with the first group of Hasidim in 1777. It's a long time ago. He made Aliyah to Eretz Yisrael, to the Holy Land of Israel, which was under the Ottoman Empire. And he was living in Tiberias, in Tiberia. At that point, there was a madman, an imbecile, a who went up to the mountain of olives, Harazetim, with a huge shofar, and he started to blow shofar on the Mount of Olives near Jerusalem. 
And right away, Jews, Arabs, started to hear the shofar from the Mount of Olives. You know what they thought? Eliyahu Hanavi. Elijah the prophet is blowing the shofar, heralding the coming of Mashiach. And news traveled before WhatsApp, but news traveled very fast. Elijah the prophet has arrived, and he announced the coming of Mashiach Tzitkenu. And very soon, news came to Tveria, to Tiberias. And it arrived to the home of this great holy master, Reb Mendel Haradaker, the pre Haaretz. And somebody came into his house and said, You heard? Mashiach is here, Mashiach is here. Yehoah Navi is blowing shofar on the Mount of Olives. And this is what Hasidim say what happened. He opened the window. He stuck out his head. He snuffed, he sniffed the ear. He shed a tear and he said, no, Mashiach is not here yet. Later they found out that this guy was a little deranged, unfortunately, he was mentally challenged. And he went up to blow shofar, but it had nothing to do with any reality. He was a delusional man, sadly. So they asked a great question. Why did he have to open his window and stretch out his head and, and, and sniff? And the answer is because in his home, there was always an atmosphere of Mashiach. If he would have smelled the air in his home, he couldn't say Mashiach is not here because the Geula was always there. He had to snuff outside of his house to know if Mashiach is here. What does this mean? What it means is as follows. We are living now in extraordinary times. Every day that passes, we get closer and closer to Mashiach. This was true before Corona. It's certainly true amidst Corona. We are living in the end of exile, and soon there will be the Geula. But you know how we prepare for it? We prepare for it by living in that way in our own life, in our own homes. Can I create in my home an atmosphere of redemption? How? By bringing in the Aleph into exile. Can I bring Mashiach into my marriage? Can I bring Mashiach into my relationship with my children? Can I bring Mashiach into my relationship with myself? Can I bring Mashiach into every moment of my existence? How? By introducing that secret string theory of oneness into every reality. What does it mean to introduce oneness into every reality? I was taking a walk a few weeks ago with a relative of mine, and we walked by one of the streets here where I live in Rockland County in Muncie, and there was somebody sitting in a garden, and I said, hi, how are you, how is everything? And they greeted me in return. The person I was walking with says, you know this person? I said, I don't know this person. I said, so why are you greeting them so warmly? So I said to this person, I'll be honest with you, very soon Mashiach is going to come. When Mashiach is going to come, the whole world is going to experience oneness. When I'm going to meet a stranger, I'm naturally going to be warm. So I want to start living like that today. I want to start living with that consciousness today. The prophet says in Isaiah chapter 11, that the wolf shall lie with the lamb. The animals will get along. You know why? Because the whole globe will be filled with divine awareness like water covers the sea. Under the water, there is a whole universe with so many diverse creatures beneath the water. When you look at the water, you see the bed of water that encompasses and unites everything. When Mashiach comes, everyone will still be an individual. You will be you, and I will be I. Each one has their role to play, but we will see the oneness that pervades us all. I'm not going to look at you and see a stranger 
competing with me. I'm not going to look at you and see a person who is alien to me, who I don't care about, who doesn't care about me. Rather, what am I going to see? I'm going to see immediately that we're all an organic part of one infinite whole. That every single one of us is a manifestation of divine energy in this world. And therefore, you can't take away my light. I can't take away your light. Because your light belongs to you. It's your divine gift. My light belongs to me. It's my divine gift. On the contrary, the more you shine your light, the more you empower me to shine my light. The more I shine my light, the more I empower you to shine your light. Every single one of us is a manifestation of God's energy in this world. Every single one of us is an ambassador of the divine, an ambassador of love, light, hope, healing, wisdom, authenticity, integrity, truthfulness, and redemption. Mashiach is the time when I look in the mirror and what am I going to see? I'm not just going to see meat and potato. I'm not just, I wanted to say meat and potato. I'm not just going to see flesh, bones, and sinews. Of course I'll see that. I'm not even only going to see 50, 60 trillion cells, red blood cells, white blood cells. I'm not even only going to see the jinnah, that too. But I'm going to see, most importantly, the inner soul, the spirituality, the divine energy that vibrates in me. I'm going to see myself. Who am I? I am a manifestation of Hashem in this world. I'm a manifestation of infinity. When I see myself as infinity, I look at you. You're also part of infinity automatically it's a new world. That's why Maimonides says this is a world in which there's no jealousy, no negative competitiveness, no hunger, no war, in which there is an inherent unity that comes out in our own life. When I look at the conflicts in my heart, things that disappoint me, things that frustrate me, things that get me down, I could look at it in two ways. I could say, Oy nebach, I'm a miserable loser, I have this problem and that problem and that problem. Or I could say, no, 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 no. There is oneness. There is infinity that captures my entire life. And every challenge that I have ultimately is here to make me a better person. It's here to bring me to a much deeper place of awareness. It's here to wake me up. I'm allowed to be vulnerable and embrace my broken parts. Because inside every broken part, there is a secret. A secret to cultivate. This doesn't explain every tragedy in life. We don't have explanations. We're not God, and we don't have God's brains. It does, however, motivate us and empower us never ever to surrender into a state of despair. My dearest friends, there is this concept of judgment. What about all the judgment of Mashiach? Mashiach comes, we await for him every day, Mashiach is the moment that everybody's soul is on fire. Mashiach doesn't happen when Mashiach comes. Mashiach happens now. But what about all the judgment? What about all the judgment? And you think, you see, I think it's important to explain this. And maybe I can give a very simple example. People say, what well, Mashiach is going to come suddenly. A donkey is going to emerge with the Messiah on top of it. Come on. How exactly is that going to work? But the truth is much more subtle and much more sophisticated than that. Imagine if somebody is pouring kerosene on all the buildings and all the houses everywhere. Nobody sees it, but there's kerosene everywhere. All it takes is for a person to light a match, for everything to go up in flames. It's not the match that did it. It's the match coming after all the kerosene. Can I borrow that 
horrible metaphor to something positive. And that is, every mitzvah that your grandmother, your great-grandmother, your great-great-great-great-grandmother did for the last 3,000 years has poured divine energy into every aspect of this world. Therefore, the Rambam says, you should always see yourself as balanced. You and the world are like a balanced scale. One mitzvah can tip the scale and bring Mashiach. That seems a little exaggerated. One mitzvah, yes. Lighting one match can set the whole world on godly fire. Because it's not just my match. My match is accumulative of everything of my father and mother and brothers and sisters and grandparents. Hundreds and hundreds of generations. Every tear, every smile, every gesture, every good deed, every act of goodness and kindness, every sacred divine act builds the world of Geula. It brings in more and more and more divine energy. And then there's going to be that one match that ultimately ticks it off. Take a look at Corona. An invisible virus the size of 125 nanometers. A hundred million viral particles of Corona can fit on a pinhead. On a pinhead, you have a hundred million viral particles of coronavirus. Now, you know how many you have on an eraser? And one of those brought 7.7 billion people on their knees. It affected every sector of human civilization in ways that we haven't, we don't remember in our lifetime. All from an invisible coronavirus. Never, never fail to never, never allow yourself to think that one act one thought, one word, can't have an impact. Every act, thought, and word, says Maimonides in Hilchus Truva chapter 3, based on Kedushin 49, literally has an impact beyond what our wildest imagination can even expect or anticipate. Sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't see it, sometimes we see it right away, sometimes we see it years later. I tell my students, there was one 19-year-old man, 19-year-old boy, who pulled a trigger in August 1914. He pulled a trigger in Sarajevo. A 19-year-old kid pulled a trigger. And what happened? That one bullet that he unleashed brought the First World War, which was then called the Great War, which as a result ultimately produced the Second World War. The two greatest world wars in human history which have created untold rivers of blood and suffering, especially for the Jewish people, began with a 19-year-old pulling a trigger. This is true in the negative. How much more so in the positive? It's never about quantity. Look at the corona. Look at the atom. The atomic energy. It's never about quantity. That's what we know today. With the atomic age. It's not about quantity. One atom invisible to the eye, if you manage to unleash all the energy by splitting the atom, you can destroy a world and you can build a world. So if one man can do that with a trigger, that's what Mashiach is going to do. The person Mashiach, when he comes, when Hashem decides to send Mashiach speedily, one person, but that person is going to light the match that will ultimately reveal all the goodness that has been introduced into our world from the beginning of history, every mitzvah, and the world will be on fire at that moment when the geula happens. But it doesn't start then. It starts now 
about how I live, how you live, what type of consciousness I operate on, what type of home I create, what type of family I create, what type of attitudes and thoughts fill my mind, how I treat people around me. It's a choice I make every day when I wake up and every moment of the day. Will I live in a world of exile devoid of Aleph? Will I will, will live in a world of Geula with the Aleph? Finally, I come to my last point, and then we open it up to questions. And that's about the great judgment day, doomsday. And here I want to employ a metaphor, a parable, that I heard from a senior colleague of mine, which I thought, Rabbi Friedman, I thought it's a very meaningful parable. He said, imagine there's a marriage, a young couple, madly in love with each other. And you know, she knows that he loves mushroom mushroom barley soup, like some of you. And she prepares this most delicious, tasty mushroom barley soup. And he's supposed to be home at 7 o'clock in the evening. And she takes the soup out of the pot with a ladle, puts it in a beautiful china bowl on the glass table, covers it with a little plastic to retain its heat, and eagerly awaits the arrival of the love of her life, of her husband. The guy doesn't show up. 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, and I'm like, hey, you know Jewish men, they say I'm going to be here in three minutes, and it means three hours. He doesn't come midnight. She's worried, she's concerned. The next day she's frantic. She calls her friends, she calls the police, they begin a search warrant. The next day, the next day, the next day, the man disappeared. It's as though he was swallowed up by the abyss. Weeks go by, months go by, she doesn't hear from him again. And at some point, people start telling her, it's time to give up the search, because either he's gone, and if he's alive and he's well, the fact that he didn't get in touch with you, it means this guy is gone, he's never coming back. But she says, no, he told me he's coming back. He told me he's coming back, I trust him. They said, Nebuch, Nebuch, a living widow, who's living with delusions. People come to her house to visit her, to comfort her. And you know what they see on the kitchen table? They see a bowl of soup. They say, what is this? She says, this is the soup. It's waiting for him. He told me he's coming home. They said, you're going to keep the soup here? Get rid of it. She says, no. He knew that I was making the soup for him. He loves the soup. The soup is going to wait till he comes. You know the end of the story, my friends? It took 1,900 years, and her husband showed up. He walks in one evening, comes into the kitchen, sees his wife, they embrace each other, and then he sees the soup. And he sits down, and he removes the cover, and he takes the spoon, and he puts it in the soup, and he makes a blessing, And he slurps the soup. Now, the story is over, and I want to ask you a question. If you were that husband, I want to know what your response is going to be. Multiple choice. Response number one. The soup is cold. It's cold. Why are you giving me cold soup? Soup has to be hot. One response. Response number two. We should do a poll here. 
Response number two. He sits down, tastes his soup, looks at his wife, and with tears in his eyes says, I cannot believe what a woman I married. Two millennia later, and the soup is still on the table, waiting for me. When I married you, I knew how great you were. But this greatness, this level of greatness and dedication and loyalty, I never anticipated. The creator of the world said goodbye to the Jewish people a very long time ago as he sent us into exile. And we haven't perceived the divine presence in a real way. But we always said, he told us he's coming back. And we continue to put on tefillin and celebrate Shabbos and learn Torah and teach Torah and pray and eat matzah and blow shoifer and fast on Yom Kippur and build a sukkah and learn and dance and celebrate and sigh and laugh and most importantly bequeath Torah to our children and our grandchildren. Now when Mashiach comes and our husband walks through the door and sits down and takes a little bit of that soup, what do you think his response is going to be? Will his response be, the soup is cold? Ech! Or his response will be, wow! 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 How lucky I am to have been married to such a people. 2,000 years later, and after Auschwitz, and Dachau, and Treblinka, and Bergen-Belsen, and Belsen. And after two millennia of savage suffering and persecution, trials and tribulations of every conceivable form and type, you're still Jewish, and you're proud Jews, and you want to be Jewish, and you're growing, and you're struggling, and you're looking to inspire yourself and come closer to truth and to oneness. This is beyond astounding, it's beyond incredible, it's beyond amazing. Mashiach will embrace every single Jew, kiss every single Jew. God will marvel at a nation, who through thick and thin maintained the torch and the fire and the faith and the love. Don't worry about Mashiach's coming, my dearest friends. When Mashiach comes, the ultimate love and beauty within every single Jew and every single person will explode. It will be a moment of tremendous, tremendous celebration, a moment when the ultimate truth of our inner core will emerge. The ultimate truth of humanity will emerge. The ultimate truth of the world will emerge. May it be very, very speedily in our days, even before the end of this year and before the beginning of the next year, so that Lashana Haba, already Rosh Hashanah, could be Yerushalayim Habnuya. Amen, Kenya Yiratsen. Thank you very, very much. Okay, if we have some time, we could take some questions now. If anybody wants to put in your questions into the chat. Question number one. So it's not just the Torah is one and eternal and real and truth. It's the only thing that's real. I don't think I quite expressed my question but it's the best I can do. Can you clarify? Yes, the famous Shalah and the Baal Shem Tev and many other mystics explain that when we say Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, it doesn't only mean there is one God to negate polytheism. 
it doesn't only mean that God is indivisible to negate the idea of a physical, corporal God, but what it really means is Hashem Echad, God equals oneness, and oneness equals God. Meaning, what is the definition of Hashem, if I can express myself that way, is oneness. The idea of Hashem is that there is oneness in the world, that Hashem is everything. God is alts and alts is God, because everything is an aspect of divine light, of divine energy. Everything is a manifestation of God's energy. So that means Hashem equals oneness. Oneness equals Hashem. A relationship with Hashem means a relationship with oneness, with understanding that there is oneness. So if that's the case, that is the real truth of everything. The real truth of every single reality. Every person, every talent, every resource, every atom, every cell is divinity, is divine energy. That's the expression, Ein oid mulvadai. There is nothing outside of him. What does it mean there's nothing outside of him? What about me? What about you? <laughs> what about Google, right? What about the deer here who are trying to go to sleep outside the window? What about the groundhogs? What about everything? What do you mean, Einoid Mulvade? But the idea is that everything really, its ultimate truth is divine energy. Next question. Is the state of Israel the beginning of Geula? That's a pretty, pretty loaded question. You probably know that that has triggered a lot of debate in the Jewish world. And I think it's important to distinguish between two types of geulas. Meaning, there were those who said that the state of Israel is the beginning of that messianic redemption. That's why they have in the prayers, Reshit Tzmichat Geulatenu, which you have in maybe in your shul or many other shuls that they say on Shabbat. However, there was another uh, very powerful view that said, no, the state of Israel is a great blessing. The state of Israel is a great miracle. State of Israel is a tremendous moment in Jewish history where we have close to 7 million Jews today living in the Holy Land and we must protect it with every fiber of our being and love it. But every part of Jewish history is a beginning of redemption. Is that itself the Messianic redemption? Not necessarily, even though it's a great, it's a great uh, blessing and a great miracle. But this is a, uh, quite a, uh, a topic quite a topic within Jewish world and over the last 60-70 years a lot has been written about it from one extreme to the other extreme next question how is this idea that you're talking about different than pantheism or all of the eastern religions how does this include a personal God excellent question excellent question so pantheism is the idea that God can be equated with nature. In other words, there's no God outside of nature. What we are saying is the exact opposite. There's no nature outside of God. Or as Chazal put it, Hashem constitutes the space of the world, but the world doesn't constitute His space. So pantheism says there's no God outside of nature. God is basically a sum total of nature. What we're saying is there's no nature outside of God. Of course, God transcends nature. God is not defined by nature. God is above nature. He created nature. He conceived nature. All of nature comes from Hashem, who is beyond nature. You know, children always ask the question. You say everything needs a creator. A musical composition needs somebody to create it. 
A great piece of architecture needs an architect, right? A beautiful mansion has a contractor, and suddenly the cell doesn't have a creator, and suddenly the synchronization of the whole cosmos doesn't have a creator, and planet Earth doesn't have a creator, and all the laws of nature don't have a creator, so there's a creator, but who created the creator? Of course, the creator is someone that transcends matter, and space, and time. Because matter, space, and time, as we know today in cosmology, all came together, right? According to Stephen Hawkins and many others, time also begins with the Big Bang. So the Big big Bang is not only the genesis of matter and the genesis of space, it's also the genesis of time. And we have it all in the first verse. What's the opening of the whole Torah? Bereshes, Barel, Lekimus, Hashemayim, Vesaretz. The first word is Bereshes. In the beginning, God created. God created the beginning. Because time is creation. Time is a dimension of creation. Time is not eternal. Bereshis Baralkim, God creates the beginning, Esashamayim, heaven, which represents space, and Eretz, which represents matter. And these three things converge to create our reality. Because you have time, and you have space, and you have matter, and you can't have one without the others. Because you have matter, where you're going to put matter? You need space. And when is this going to happen? So you need time. So time, space, and matter are the trio that work together. And today they talk about perhaps that it all happened together at the Big Bang. But God is Elohim, transcends matter, space, and time. Conceives matter, space, and time. So all matter, space, and time is an aspect of God. But God transcends it. So that's the big difference between this and pantheism. Eastern religions, there's no element necessarily of a personal God. We speak to Hashem as our Father, our King. Avinu malkeinu ein lanu melech. We speak to Hashem like a parent, like a child speaks to a parent, like a servant speaks to a king. It's a personal creator. It's the idea of divine providence. Hashem loves you. Hashem wanted you. Hashem is connected to you, and you have a personal relationship with Hashem. That is, of course, the foundation of Judaism as well. Excellent question. But I should just say that according to the Zohar, you know, that when the Torah says that Abraham sent many of his children to the East and he gave them gifts, the Zohar says he gave them spiritual disciplines. Which is why in Buddhism, one of the great mantras is Brahman, which some say is attributed to Avraham. Because it may be that a lot of the Eastern ideas about spirituality and oneness come from the teachings of Abraham before the Torah was given and they represent a certain vision of oneness. And yet, with when the Torah was given, there was the updated version of the ability to transform the physical world and make it divine, which is the uniqueness of Matan Torah, post the Torah was given. But the Eastern disciplines all advocate segregation, transcendence, nirvana, one and all and all in one karma. In other words, there's the element of separation from the physical world. Judaism is about integration, enoid mulvadai, the oneness pervades heaven and earth, body and soul, spiritual and physical, and in the ultimate equation of things, the spiritual is not any closer to God than the physical, because God is infinitely removed from physical, as much as He's infinitely removed from spiritual. God is not spiritual either, and therefore both of them can be synthesized through the ultimate oneness of an undefined God who transcends both the spiritual and the physical infinitely. Did you understand what I said? (laughs) Okay, I didn't understand, but it sounds good, and it's true. Next question. Is there any chance that Mashiach can arrive faster than the 6,000-year plan, given that we still will be alive and we still 
will experience Mashiach before 6,000 years. After all, we, ha- we are a nation, we still hate each other, we have sinas chinam, and we are not improving. Okay, I beg to differ with you. First of all, of course Mashiach can arrive before the end of the 6,000 years. Mashiach could arrive every single moment. That's how I began my lecture. We await Mashiach's coming every single day before the end of the 6,000 years. Remember, every mitzvah that the Jewish people did from the beginning of history did not disappear. It's all accumulative. It's all the kerosene in the world. Every good deed that was ever done, every prayer adds up. It's a cumulative energy. So do you know how much positivity there is in the world now? We sit as midgets on the shoulders of giants. It's not just our own capacity. We come as representatives of 3,000 years of Jewish history and all of their goodness and kindness and sacrifice and fear of heaven and love of God. Should we improve? Of course we should improve. Now you say, we're not getting any better. We have so much hatred and animosity. And I want to say to you that it's, I don't see this. I know we have hatred and I know we have what to improve and everybody should improve. But I actually think that in recent years, more and more Jews have become aware of the crucial importance of Jewish unity. When I grew up, I'll be frank with you, when I grew up, I'm not an old man, I'm still a baby. But when I grew up, it was very popular in certain circles to badmouth other communities. And even rabbis, if they would get up in shul and they would speak about the horrors of a certain leader or a certain community, it often would give them popularity. People actually became popular by discriminating and negating and spreading hate against others. You know what? Today, it doesn't sell, especially among the youth. If you do this today, it really doesn't sell. People don't want that. Most Jewish communities are fed up with this. They're allergic to animosity and to strife and to contention. They want to hear messages of love and unity. And I think we're becoming more and more aware. This morning I had a Zoom lecture, an interview with the chief rabbi of South Africa, my friend, the honorable Rabbi Warren Goldstein. And we did a, we did a Zoom chat today, which you could see on, on uh, the yeshiva.net. And, uh, he told me he wants to talk about Jewish unity because he feels that this is a major issue today. People are looking for it and, and asking about it and they really feel that it's so important and he wanted to analyze and scrutinize why it's so important. So yes, there's a lot of work, but the buck stops here. Let me ask myself before the end of the year, is there somebody I could make amends with? And let me apologize. Let's have the courage to create peace among families, peace among communities, peace among our nation. And you know what? That itself is the most powerful ingredient to bring to bring Mashiach. Next question. When Mashiach comes, will we be going to Eretz Yisrael? Or will Eretz Yisrael expand and encompass the lands where we now live in? Well, as we say in many of our prayers, Mashiach will gather all Jews from the whole world and go to our promised eternal homeland, which is Eretz Yisrael. However, the Medrash does say, which means that the Holy Land is going to expand into all of the lands of the world, which probably means, according to many commentators, that the holiness that is now present in Eretz Yisrael will be felt throughout the whole world because the oneness of Hashem will be experienced throughout the whole world. And therefore, there will be an element of Eretz Yisrael in every single country of the world. 
But I think, according to most of our sources, the Jewish people will be going to Eretz Yisrael because that is our eternal inheritance and the place that Hashem promised the Jewish people as His as his, inher- as his inheritance to us forever and ever, and therefore that is going to be the place where uh, the Ju- whoopsie, the place where the Jewish people are gonna are gonna go to. Okay, next question. Let me just look up the next question here. How will Hashem destroy the Yitzhahara as soon as Mashiach arrives and all poverty and all illness end immediately? Well, I think we should help him by doing a little bit of this today. We try to help the poor and we try to eradicate as much illness as we can. But you have to understand that the Yetzirah and illness essentially comes from the dissonance that exists between the inner and the outer. The moment you find the seamless unity between the inner and the outer, then we can transcend illness and we can transcend poverty, and we can transcend our evil inclinations. Because really, what is going to be the role of biologists, and physicians, and neuroscientists, when Mashiach comes? Are they all going to be out of a job? No. They're actually going to show the root of every physical ailment in the spiritual source. And when we can synchronize the two, and heal on a spiritual level, then ultimately the physical manifestation will also be healed. And if you know today about the progress of medicine, we're getting closer and closer to this place where we treat the body as a holistic entity, not just as a compartmentalized bunch of bones and limbs that are working together, but is really a holistic energy, energy and how much neuroscience teaches us about the impact of our attitudes and our thoughts as the Tzemach Tzedek said, think good, it will be good. This is not just an exaggeration or, you know, some hopeless optimist saying his thing. It's a scientific reality. My attitudes, my perspectives affect the literally the cellular state of my, my living organism. I am a teenager going back to high school and I would want to ask for advice on keeping lessons of the coronavirus and get back to life as we knew it before. Well, there's a lot of lessons from the coronavirus. I think one of the deepest lessons of the coronavirus is we're all connected. We all need each other. We're vulnerable. Let's not be afraid of being vulnerable. And let's never, ever surrender to fear because our vulnerability can become a source of strength when we realize that we are always in the hands of God. Next question. Beautiful questions. Beautiful questions. Okay, I'm looking at the chat. Fine, I see the last question from, was from Reuven. So I conclude by sending you all my love and blessings. Thank you again to the Meller family, the Goldberg family, and may this be a great tribute to the great soul of Elliot Goldberg, Zechariah Levracha. I want to bless his family and all of you, my dearest friends in New Rochelle, the whole community of young Israel, with a ksiva v'chasima tova, shana tova m'suka, a year filled with health and happiness and prosperity, a year filled with good news, a year filled with tremendous opportunity and positivity, a year in which Hashem fulfills all of your heart's desires, and may it be a beautiful, amazing, prosperous, powerful, meaningful, inspiring last days of the year, and welcoming 
a new year in which the world will be blessed with all the positive blessings, and most importantly, a year of redemption. Amen. Thank you. Thank you very much. Amen, amen. Thank you so much, Rabbi Jacobson. We look forward to hopefully getting together in person at another time. Be'ezir Hashem, thank you for the schus and thank you for the invitation. Okay, take care everyone. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.